the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good morning, Little Rock and Central Arkansas. This is Nick Horton filling in for the great Dave Ellswick. Thanks, Dave, for uh, another opportunity to fill your very big shoes, very, very big shoes to fill. Um, but happy to be here. Nick Horton, founder and CEO of Opportunity Arkansas. Feels like it's been forever, but it was actually just last week we were here. And so I'm, I'm proud to be back. And I'm excited in this first hour, we're going to be talking to a couple folks that I really respect and appreciate that are doing, I think, a fantastic job representing Arkansas in D.C., in the House of Representatives. And uh, as we normally do, as Dave normally does this morning, we're going to talk to Representative French Hill. And then in the second half of this hour, we'll talk to Representative Bruce Westerman and just get their thoughts about what's happening on the Hill right now. There's a lot of talk about government shutdown again and the spending bill and what's going to happen. So we'll get their thoughts. And in fact, right now, I want to just go ahead and welcome in Representative French Hill, who I believe is on the line. Representative, are you with us? You bet, Nick. Great to be with you. Thanks hey. for the invite. Absolutely. It's great to talk to you. Um, so tell us, I always like to have folks just kind of remind listeners roughly, I know you're the second congressional district, but that's changed a little bit, in fact, in the last year with the redistricting. So remind folks just quickly the general geographic area that your district covers. You bet. So the second congressional district represents uh, the heart of central Arkansas. So when you think of Greater Little Rock, you think of Pulaski County and Saline County and Faulkner County. And then I've got uh, Perry and Conway County up the Arkansas River Valley. And then uh, what's really fun for me, I cover all of uh, Greer's Ferry Lake now. So I've got uh, Van Buren County, which is uh, Greer's Ferry, Fairfield Bay, and uh, the uh, Clinton area. And uh, we, in redistricting, picked up Cleburne County, Heber Springs, and the eastern side of the lake. And then a long traditional county in the second congressional district uh, going back really since its founding is White County, so Searcy. So that's the, that's the district. We picked up Cleburne County in redistricting, and we lost a portion of south, <coughs> excuse me, southeast Pulaski County, some of which went to uh, Rick Crawford in the first, and some went to my colleague Bruce Westerman in the fourth. Okay. All right. Well, there's worse places to pick up than Cleburne County. Those are good folks up there. That's a hey, beautiful good, area. I'll, that way I have everybody on both sides of the lake complaining about the Corps of Engineers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's got to be fun. Well, hey, I've got a couple questions, but first I just wanted to hear your thoughts and kind of what's going on, what, what's the big news on the Hill. I know you, uh, as much as any of the Arkansas delegation, are right in the mix uh, with leadership and with everything that's going on. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about budget and shutdown and all these things, but just what's your, what's your take on the current lay of the land in DC right now? Yeah, I'd say the big, big update is conservatives want 
and it's been our goal all year since uh, conservatives took the House back under Speaker Kevin McCarthy. We want to cut spending levels from the spending arama, the mania and avalanche of spending uh, from the pandemic. We all, on a bipartisan basis, spent money in the pandemic. We didn't know what we were dealing with. We spent more money than we should have, in my opinion. Uh, But then when Joe Biden got elected, he doubled down. And we're running uh, federal expenses in the $6 trillion a year range. Now, think about that. When in 2019, the whole federal government, whole federal government, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, Defense, National Parks, the whole gamut, was like $4.5 trillion. That's what it costs to run the federal government wow. just in 2019. And we're now, Nick, running over $6 trillion a year, $1.5 trillion deficits. And this is all at the feet of Joe Biden's avalanche of spending. So it's real simple for House Republicans. Our goal is to begin to move spending back down to those pre-pandemic levels. And it's a real fight. Joe Biden doesn't want to do it. Senate Republicans and Senate Democrats don't seem dedicated to it. So the fight's in the House. Now, how do we do it? I believe the best way to do that is to pass the House uh, committee-approved appropriations bills, which do exactly that. They have more conservative policies. They get rid of Nancy and Pelosi and Joe Biden's policies and lower spending, and we've done a good job. But we have a handful of House Republicans who don't think that's good enough and or who are blocking getting those bills to the House floor because they want even deeper spending cuts, which, in my opinion, we don't have the votes for in the House and we don't have the votes for in the Senate. Uh, so we're in the midst of this week, and I know you'll talk to Bruce about it, too, and get his views, of finding consensus to get the most conservative spending package across the House floor, including, if necessary, a continuing resolution for, say, four weeks to finish that work so we don't have uh, a government shutdown that you had in your your tee up to the segment. Yeah. So so under the the current proposal that y'all are pushing for, would this take us back to pre pandemic spending levels, or how how closely would it get us back to that that starting point, that it baseline? Would, it would get us. It would. Some of it would be pre pandemic uh, in our bills, and some would be back in twenty twenty three levels. Uh, it'd be a mix because okay. we've grown defense. Sure. Uh, but in state and foreign ops, the bill that we're trying to put on the House floor this week is actually at 2016 level. So we've picked and chose. We've tried to use good judgment uh, about how to do the spending on a customized basis, what, pro- what uh, cabinet agencies like defense are more important versus some in the domestic budget that are less important. And we've uh, offered uh, spending levels that that we believe are appropriate there. So what I'm, I'm, I have to admit, I'm a little bit out of the loop on this because I've been so focused on what's happening here at the state level and there's been a lot yeah. going on, a lot of good stuff going on, but what's the time frame for all of this? What, uh, you know, what, what's the deadline for <laughs> passing a new, you know, a new spending resolution? Well, every conservatives don't want omnibus spending bills. And so we said each house, this was in the rules of the house. I get questions about this all the time. We changed the rules of the house where there's no omnibus spending bill. That's a big talking point for people. So we did that. And so because of the pressure we put on the Senate, the Senate passed all 12 appropriations bills before the August recess across the, uh, the Senate floor. They beat us for the first time in a decade since I've worked in Congress. The Senate actually did their job. Now, here's the irony. 
we did not get that done in the House due to this same uh, small group of people debating along the way. We have drug out the process. So we've only passed across the House floor one appropriations bill. We have 11 more we need to try to pass. And that's why this continuing continuing resolution for four uh, for about four weeks does have support of the House, but we just don't have the right formula to get it passed yet. Got it. Okay, so this would you know. So we need to do this. We need to do this before September 30th. We need a continuing resolution uh, passed and signed into law by the president before September 30th, or we're faced with a government shutdown, which hurts our military. Uh, hurts uh, all aspects of the federal government's performance at a, at a really critical time. Do we think, I mean, do you have any thoughts on the, shut, the prospect of a shutdown? Is that something you think the other side and the president want to see because they want to sort of be able to blame this on House Republicans going into an election year? Sure. I think politically that's right. I think shutdowns uh, don't work. They don't end up lowering spending. They generally are blamed on whoever the party is not in the White House Mm -hmm. because the White House uh, has a little edge there. You remember in the shutdown for President Trump between uh, Schumer and President Trump in 2019, we didn't really lower spending in any way. Uh, It was called the Schumer shutdown because House Republicans did a good job focusing the fire on Schumer and President Trump did as well. But it ultimately, um, you know, did not change the direction of, of spending like many of us would hope that it would. And that happened also back in 2013. Um, so it's a place to demonstrate the difference between the two political parties. Sure. But we should be doing that, Nick, just like you do every day in your work, without a government shutdown. That's, you know, we need to be passing bills that are more conservative and then fighting to get them enacted into law instead of basically doing uh, something that's counterproductive, in my view, and that's shutting the whole government down. Yeah. No, I think that's fair. I mean, there is part of me that, and I think part of the conservative uh, you know, movement in general, there's some appeal to the idea of a shutdown because maybe it forces the other side to the negotiating table and maybe we get some concessions. But to your point, it seems like it seems, you know, it's this game of chicken and it's it's a matter of who blinks first, and it feels like our side always blinks first. And certainly, without you know, without a strong Republican president who's uh, you know able to use that bully pulpit to drive that message home, uh, it seems very risky and probably not in the best yeah, interest you, of taxpayers. Yeah, think about it strategically. If you have the White House and one chamber of Congress, uh, then you have a little edge in a shutdown, both on public relations and, as you say, getting. A concession. Right. We're not in that situation here. We don't have the Senate and we don't have the White House. So we don't quite have the edge we would have if we had one of the other, right? And that's just the way it works in the leveraging. So the best thing we could do is pass the most conservative bills and then go negotiate. Uh, for bits and pieces of that across the board. And, and the debt ceiling was a big victory. I know some people don't think it was. They haven't read it, and they don't understand it if they don't think it was a victory because it's what got this to the point where we are. We're going to have spending in 2024 that's lower than 2023. We're capping spending at 1% a year, uh, and we're clawing back all the COVID spending. 
Uh, we cut the IRS budget for one year. We had many uh, and improved uh, environmental permitting. We had a lot of wins in the debt ceiling negotiation. We need to see those wins implemented by this spending uh, negotiation that we're doing right now with the appropriation. So you mentioned the IRS. I know there's a lot of, you know, the, the 87,000 new IRS agents is something that's just constantly, I think, staying on folks' mind. Are we going to yeah. see some progress on that at, at some point? Are we going to reduce that number or be able to well, walk some of that back? If we if we lock in what we got in the debt ceiling, we stop it for the first year and then we fight about it again next year. Uh, and we keep the pressure on through our Ways and Means Committee and through our House Oversight, uh, it would be a catastrophe to lose the House next year and uh, lose and not win the presidency. Because if we lose the House next year and we lose the presidential race, uh, it's Katie bar the board door on what Joe Biden's going to do on spending. We're going to have deficits and big government for the rest of our days. Yeah, t- totally agree. If, and we've got Representative French Hill on the line. Uh, Representative, I got a note here from Dave. He wanted me to ask you. I guess he's listening out there from the the beach or wherever he's at on his vacation. Um, but P- former President Trump made some headlines over the weekend. Uh, he went on Meet the Press, I believe, and basically said uh, Rep- uh, former Speaker Pelosi was essentially responsible for January sixth because she's she's the one that oversees the security of the Capitol when she was a speaker. And uh, according to President Trump, former President Trump, he said she turned down 10,000 soldiers. If she didn't turn down, turn down the soldiers, you wouldn't have had January 6th. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I'll go from uh, memory on that. Um, first, President Trump called out the National Guard at 3 p.m. on the Sunday afternoon before January 6th. This is for the mall. This has to do with the public national park space where the rally was going to to be taking place. And it's true that the president does not have any authority over uh, calling out the National Guard for the legislative branch, for the Capitol. That responsibility uh, resides with uh, the speaker. And... Hmm. It's not clear to me that she was at all prepared for January 6th. And the Senate, before the January 6th commission, Nick, the Senate issued a bipartisan report. Uh, Amy Klobuchar was the, um, the Democrat, and I'm kind of blanking out on who the Republican was. But they issued a report that I read before uh, looking at the commission idea in the House that Pelosi proposed. And it said that the House Sergeant-at-Arms was not in uh, listening to and discussing security risks with the FBI warnings that the FBI was receiving uh, and that they were not well-coordinated with the D.C. Metropolitan Police. And so I think President Trump is partially right. I don't know anything about him offering her 10,000 troops. I have no documented evidence of that. Sure. But I know he called out the guard for the National Park area in the mall, and uh, I know that she's responsible for the capital security, and I think she did a bad job, a terrible job. And it's why I voted against the uh, Nancy Pelosi commission and voted for a bipartisan uh, commission that would have investigated Nancy Pelosi. Well, she didn't get investigated in the famous January 6th commission that everybody's talked about. It was a disaster. It was a partisan hack job. 
and she was not investigated. Her office, off limits to the investigation. Her meal emails, off limits to the investigation. Her staff, off limits to the investigation. Wow. So um, I'd say I'd give uh, President Trump on that a partial uh, because it is 100% true that the security features and benefits and responsibility for the Capitol belong to the Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader and not the President. Well, that's amazing. You know, I haven't seen that on CNN. I hadn't heard that uh, that side of the story. So that's a, that's a very interesting insight. Uh, we're talking with Representative French Hill. we got just a few minutes left before our 7.30 break here. Since we're talking about Trump and we mentioned the election cycle coming up, any thoughts on the presidential race, the, you know, the, the prospects of Republicans keeping the House? Uh, what's your take on 2024 as it stands right now? Well, I think uh, we need to keep the House. We have a shot at winning the Senate. I think keeping the House is going to be very challenging. We won the House this year uh, and have our very small uh, majority because we won Republican seats in districts that Biden won. So we've got to hold those seats. And that's going to be uh, challenging and very expensive, but that's the mission we're under. Um, And we need a candidate that can beat Joe Biden. Uh, And if we have uh, those features, then we're going to be able to take the Senate back, hold the House, I think, by a slight majority and win the presidency and turn around this outrageous, poor, uh, ridiculous. uh, I can't even use the word leadership. So I'm just going to say overspending. Big government, climate-dominated Biden administration and put them in the ash heap and let them join Jimmy Carter as the worst president of my lifetime. I like the sound of that. Um, Last question. This might be the toughest one, so forgive me. But what's going on with the Razorbacks and what any predictions? Okay. Any? Okay. Are we breaking oh up? God. Sorry. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, I hear some static on the line. Uh, okay. Any, any First, pre- predictions for this weekend? Well, uh, we came out great in BYU. The things that I watched in the first two games where we just couldn't get an offense clicking, we saw it. And we saw some new talent uh, in the uh, fantastic uh, return. Oh, the punt return. return. Yeah. Fan- Unbelievable speed, yeah. talent. Reminded me of Joe Adams. Yeah. And uh, RJ's uh, work. Uh, but we've got to have this offense clicking because our defense uh, – you know, I don't know. We we I was very disappointed. So I'm still counting on my hogs. I'm yeah. On, uh, we got to get on that SEC game trail now and win. Uh, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a tough slog, but I hope, I'm hoping they can figure it out. I think the offensive line. I'm no football expert. I don't do X's and O's. I didn't play uh, in school, but it seems like the offensive line was just an absolute uh, you know mesh out there and just let everybody through and kept KJ moving and. Just couldn't quite get in a rhythm with the offense, but uh, we'll hope we're hopeful. We'll hope for, for uh, LSU. We'll see what happens. Uh, Representative French Hill, thanks as always for your time. And I just want to say, I think I said this last time we had you on, but uh, I'm just really proud to have you representing Arkansas in Congress, representing my family in Congress. You know, folks out there that are listening to the show that pay attention to the Arkansas and the national political scene. You know, we're, we're talking to a guy here who's not just a, you know, there's 435 members in the House, and there's a lot of them that just kind of blend in with the drapery. Representative Hill is not one of those. He is he is in the mix, and he is fighting 
for Arkansas and for taxpayers and uh, doing a, a really terrific job. So I just want to say thank you for everything you've done. I know there's there's a lot of headache that comes with it and travel and time away from family and other things. But uh, as an Arkansan and as one of your constituents, I just want to say thank you for for what you're doing. Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show. Nick Horton, founder and CEO of Opportunity Arkansas, filling in for the great, the handsome, the the just distinct Dave Ellswick. Very honored for the opportunity. Proud, thankful, grateful for the opportunity to be here. And Phil Dave's very, very large shoes. Uh, we talked in the last segment, last couple of segments with Representative French Hill from the 2nd Congressional District about everything that's going on in Washington, D.C. with the debate over the federal spending bill. Uh, talked a little bit about the election coming up in the presidential year. A lot of exciting stuff coming up ahead. And uh, in a moment when he calls, in, okay, he's on the line. We're going to talk, we're going to welcome in uh, Representative Bruce Westerman from the 4th Congressional District, uh, someone on the geographic layout of the 4th District. Well, the 4th District still covers just about everything on the Louisiana line, except for Chico County, down right down in the southeast corner of the state. <clears throat> if you, everything that borders Texas uh, is in the 4th District, and then about halfway up the state of Oklahoma to just uh, just about the Fort Smith city limits, you know, Southern Sebastian County, uh, that's in the fourth district. And then it, it, uh, comes in side to the back to the East around the third, uh, district. And it's got, uh, Logan County, Franklin County, Newton County, Pope County with Russellville that got added to the fourth district this time comes back down to my hometown of hot springs and Garland County and then takes in uh, Grant County, Jefferson County with Pine Bluff, uh, and uh, the southern part of Pulaski County. So if you're driving to the Little Rock Airport, um, when you get to the Riggs dealership on Interstate 30, the 4th District starts right there, follow around Interstate 40 to right before you exit to the airport. Everything south of there is in the 4th District all the way to the Louisiana line. So kind of gives you an idea. It's got 33 of the state's 75 counties in it. So it is wow. obviously a large rural district. That was a very vivid description. I, I have a feeling that's not the first time you've given that description. I could almost <laughs> see it as you were describing it. You must be an engineer or something. Uh, that was very detailed. Something like that. Yeah, something like that. Um, well, hey, before we jump into federal issues, I just wanted to get your thoughts briefly on kind of what's happening at the state level. That's more of the space that I live in typically day to day. And I know when I first met you, you were the you were the majority leader of the Arkansas House and had the simple plan. And honestly, there's a lot of things that have happened even this year in the legislature that frankly, I you know, I think you deserve a lot of credit for in your leadership from a decade ago, which is crazy to think that was 10 years ago back in 2013. Um, but what, what's it like now just to be kind of a spectator on some of what's happening at the state level? And are you a little are you a little jealous that uh, you missed out on the super majorities with the with a super conservative governor? Uh, no, it's it's great to see that uh, Arkansas has flipped to a, a solid conservative state. And the fact that, um, you know, we were when I first started in the state legislature, we were in the minority 
And I, I went from minority leader to majority leader overnight there in 2012 when we flipped mm-hmm. the the majority for the first time since Reconstruction. So we've been 138 years of Republicans in the minority. But we still, even though we had the majority, we were uh, a one-vote majority, so 51 to 49 in the House. And uh, we still had a, a Democrat governor. So we we pushed a lot of issues. We had that simple plan, which I can still tell you the S was for spending restraints. <laughs> Uh, the I was for income and other tax reform, and you see what's happening yep. now with the income tax is steadily yep. going down. The the M was for uh, Medicaid responsibility, which uh, we still got some work to do on that <laughs> in the state. Yeah. Uh, the P was protecting our uh, our human rights, and we had a lot of our uh, uh, pro life and other issues were in that. Uh, you know protecting the Second Amendment and, and First Amendment, every way we could affect that from the state level, we put that was part of the P. The, the E was educational excellence, uh, which you've seen a huge focus on education reforms in Arkansas, and the L was legal uh, and liability reform. Uh, and so there's, there's a lot of things that have happened from that plan that we put together uh, way back in 2012, but there's still a lot of work to do. But it's great to see that the, um, the the heart of the state's moving in a conservative direction. I would say. Yeah, definitely agree. And he's he's far too modest to do it. But I will say, since he won't, Representative Westerman, in my opinion, just deserves a ton of credit for where we are now. He's obviously not solely responsible for that, but that simple plan. I mean, I heard someone mention it this week, Representative, like, you remember the simple plan? You remember that? And we just took a minute. We just reflected on, like, man, that was 10 years ago. And look how, I mean, to your point, there's still more to be done. But, man, there's a lot of things that you helped lay the groundwork for 10, 12, 14 years ago. Sometimes, you know, big ideas uh, that are transformational, like education freedom and income tax reform and some of these things, they just take time. But you got to start somewhere, and I think you deserve more credit than you're probably willing to take on starting those conversations that are now coming to fruition. Well, that's that's very kind of you to say that, but there are tons of people that did a lot of work on that and that are still doing work on it. I, I remember having an education bill to address dyslexia, and um, I was the majority leader, and just about got shamed out of the committee because I would dare question the education establishment. <laughs> and now Arkansas has some of the best dyslexia laws in the country. And that happened after I left the legislature and came to Congress because other people who were there picked up those issues and kept pushing them. They got a lot of grassroots support. And that's making a difference in the lives of our kids across the yes. state. And there's like I said, there's still a lot of work to do, but you said it well, that you have to start somewhere. You have to start. Sometimes you've got to have that voice in the wilderness that just says, hey, guys, like, have we thought about this? Even with the supermajority, you've got to have someone that's willing to just stand up and just put ideas forth. Yeah, and politics is a long game. People that's right. Try to throw, uh, they, they try to throw Hail Marys all the time, but it's really – three yards in a cloud of dust, if you want to use a football analogy. And you got to make sure you're moving the ball in the right direction. 
And for so long, uh, conservatives sat on the sidelines, and we just let the, the far left just uh, chisel away at everything, and they're still doing that. It's very frustrating here in D.C. when I see what's happening to the underpinnings of our country and how um, it, it's just being chipped away around the edges. And they do it in so many different ways because the federal government and the bureaucracy has grown so large, and Congress has given them so much power over time. You know, it goes back even to the uh, the FDR administration when they passed something called the Administrative Powers Act. And since then, the bureaucracy has just ballooned. And you've, you've got agencies now that are, are, are trying to make the laws. They enforce the laws, and they will uh, uh, fine you and collect money if you break their laws. And it's all in the administrative process and it's pushing the legislature and the courts out of the way. But I think our founders were brilliant when they created the system of checks and balances. We just got to have people that will fight to make sure that those checks and balances are in place. And in the, in the big picture, that's a lot of what I work on in Congress is how we get the power back to the people through the legislative branch. Um, and, you know, what I've learned through service here is you really have to have a long-term vision and uh, we, we still get people that understand their frustration, but they're trying to change everything with one bill or, uh, you know, throw the Hail Mary all the time. And you've really got to play the long game here. And that's, you know, we're facing that with this government funding right now. We've got a, a phenomenal idea, I believe, to fund the government at the, uh, the levels that were negotiated in the debt ceiling bill, and also put a, uh, our HR2, our Secure the Border Act, in the legislation to fund the government, and you let the, the left and, and whoever's voting on this bill, they make the decision, do you want to close the government or close the border? And if you vote against the bill, you're voting to keep the border open and close the government. If you vote for the bill, you'd be voting to open the government and close the border. Uh, I was just in New York City uh, Sunday night and Monday morning uh, because as, as chairman of the Natural Resources Committee, we have jurisdiction over all the, the federal lands and the national parks. Now you've got the Biden administration that's doing a lease with the city of New York to build migrant shelters on National Park Service land. Sure. You can't make it up. Uh, the in this, in my opinion, and I think in a lot of legal folks' opinion, this violates the Organic Act that established our national parks. It violates the actual charter that created the Gateway National Recreation Area in Floyd Bennett Field, where they're wanting to build these the facilities. But then going there and visiting with the the folks from the federal government. They're waiving the environmental restrictions that they use to weaponize and stop um, other projects that they don't like. And we're talking with Representative Bruce Westerman, Republican congressman for the 4th District of Arkansas. Uh, we've only got five or six minutes left here, Congressman, but I have a kind of a two-part question for you, and then I'll, I'll give you the floor. Uh, we talked a little bit with Representative Hill, and you mentioned as well kind of the, the, the ongoing 
a debate and battle, if you will, over the federal spending bill and kind of where we're headed with that. So I want to get your thoughts on that. And then also as a former Razorback, you know, I got to ask you about the Hogs and where things are headed, what's going on with the team, and, and what are your thoughts about the game this weekend? Well, that, that second one, we may need more than five minutes. <laughs> that one, Nick, but, yeah, uh, I know. No, on the on the spending, um, again, I mentioned this. It's We, we need to have a long-term outlook. Uh, the problem with spending in the federal government is not necessarily with these appropriation bills that need to be passed. It's called discretionary spending, and it makes up around – 25% of the spending of the federal government, you could wipe all the discretionary spending out and we've still got a debt problem. Um, we need to use the appropriations process strategically to go in and do things like write in the appropriation that the Park Service cannot use one penny to build migrant shelters on uh, Park Service land. That uh, the federal government can't use money to impose 10 mile per hour speed limits in the Gulf of Mexico, which is another way they're uh, attacking the oil and gas and energy business. And also uh, they're attacking recreational fishermen uh, through NOAA uh, with putting these 10 mile per hour speed limits in, saying they're protecting uh, a whale in the Gulf of Mexico that nobody uh, can verify even exists. And then um, blaming fishermen on the Atlantic coast for killing whales that uh, ironically didn't start dying until they started building offshore wind farms off of the coast of New Jersey. So it's things like this that it's the chipping around the edges that when we use the appropriations process strategically, we can go in and cut uh, funding in those areas. Another group that a lot of people have never heard of is the Council on Environmental Quality. This is a small organization inside the White House that they're the puppeteers on a lot of these environmental issues. They direct the EPA what to do. They're the ones directing the Park Service to build migrant shelters and waive all the environmental laws. They were authorized by Congress to have a $1 million budget. Last year, the Democrats put $62 million in their budget. Uh, and they're the what I call the head of the snake. Well, I've got appropriations requests that I work with the Appropriations Committee saying uh, let's cut their funding back to $1 million. If you really want to have positive impacts on our economy and getting back on this administrative state, you've got to strategically cut funds in these, these agencies that I don't think most Americans would, would care if you even did away with a lot of these agencies. Uh, so that's, that's more of a strategic approach to appropriations. Uh, we had an issue yesterday where we had five Republicans vote against the um, the rule to allow us to debate the defense appropriations bill, which is the most re Republican appropriation bill uh, there is. And I think that sends a terrible message, especially when people are saying they want regular order and process, and they kill the rule that would allow you to have regular order and process. That's This bill has been through the uh, Republican-dominated House Armed Services Committee, and it's also uh, got amendments that uh, we want to put on the bill. This is to fund our military and our men and women in uniform. 
and you couldn't get any more regular order than to bring the bill up on the floor and debate it and pass it and send it over to the Senate. Uh, but um, I think, again, you get this short-sightedness and people thinking, um, you know, we got to do everything all at once and not wanting to do the hard work and go in and debate the bills and pass them on their merit. Uh, so that's, that's my view on the spending. Uh, we should get the appropriation bills done, get, keep the government funded and operating, and work on the real problems. And that gets back to the mandatory spending um, where 70 to 75 percent of all the spending is just on cruise control. And it's not affected one iota by how we approach these uh, these spending bills. Hmm. Well. And on the Razorback. He filibustered, folks. Go he's, he's, yeah. <laughs> go, go hogs. And uh, I'm a diehard 100 percent. Now, you played for the Hawks, uh, right? When, when was that? Well, what position? It was in the late 80s. I was on the last two teams that won conference championships, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, and that was way too long ago. Was that but, Coach Hatfield? Uh, Who was that? I, it, it was Coach Hatfield, a great, great man, fine gentleman, and I just I think the world of him. He did everything the, the right way and set a tremendous example for all of us that, that played for him. Uh, but... Um, I just hope they had a great week of practice. I hope they got their their blocking and their penalty problems yes. all figured out. And yes. their, they, they, they're going to come out and execute. You never offense. know. They've been playing pretty good defense. Yeah, the defense looks good. The defense looks good. Well, hopefully they'll make some improvements. we got to go to a hard break. Thank you, Representative Congressman. Right, Nick. We'll be back. Hey, thanks for all you do. Oh, I appreciate you. Uh, the voice you. you have there in the state and, and your organization and all the work you've been doing for so long. And Swick. We have a caller on the line, so we're going to welcome him in. This is Richard. Richard, where are you calling from? Malvern. Malvern. All right. What's your question? Thanks for calling. Um, you were talking about, you know, the taxes on the rich and the poor. Governor yeah. B put a tax in on cigarettes and alcohol to fund, you know, some great uh hospital thing yes but that the poor that tax is on the poor most people smoke poor people smoke and drink do you agree with that uh well i don't know if i know i I don't know if i could prove that but i i agree with the sentiment of what you're saying i don't know i can say that all or the most of them do but i think probably Uh, a higher percentage yeah i agree with that what what brought this to my mind is what you said, and you know when you before you went to break. Yeah, and that you know I I think that he he's taxing the the poor folks. I wish you didn't have this delay on me because I can't get my thought in. Uh, you might but, turn your radio down. It might be an echo from your radio. Yeah. No, it's not even on. Oh, okay. Well, we're we're tracking with you. You know, I think that Governor Beebe put a tax on the poor folks when he raised, you know, put that cigarette tax and alcohol tax and all that thing. He put a tax on the poor folks. It's a good, it's a, it's a fair point. And you know, the other thing I, I, I 
we talked a little bit, touched a little bit on the last segment about the grocery tax. You know, Governor Beebe yeah. campaigned on getting rid of the grocery tax. Well, guess what? That was that was 2006. He didn't do it. We've still got a grocery tax. It it brings in about ten million dollars a year off the backs of yeah. you know hardworking Arkansans buying agree groceries. With the tampon tax. Get rid of that. Well, if it was up to me, we'd get rid of all of them. Well, I, I agree with that. <laughs> I just wanted to let you know. I I, I think that Governor Beebing put the tax on the poor folks with cigarette and alcohol. That's a good. That's a good point. It's a good reminder. And again, I think when you, when you talk about the grocery tax as well, that's a tax that disproportionately affects lower income Arkansans, and they're paying more. They're paying more for groceries right now in general than they ever have because of Biden inflation. Oh, oh yeah. But then you turn around and slap a grocery tax on top of it, and you know it's interesting. We did some research earlier this year. Of where that revenue goes from the grocery tax, you know where it goes by chance, Richard? I didn't know. No, I did not. It goes to the Arkansas Department of Heritage and the Arkansas Parks Department, and keep wow. Ar- keep Arkansas beautiful. Which you know, I, I'm a conservationist as much as the next guy, maybe more than most conservatives. I think we got to take care well, of. I like the hunt and fish. Yeah, absolutely. But do you want to pay taxes on your groceries so that we can have, you know, 100 state employees? And I see these billboards everywhere I go, keep Arkansas beautiful, and TV commercials and all this stuff. And maybe that's all well and good, and I'm sure it's well-intentioned. But in reality, in in the world that we live in, there's trade-offs, right? And so we're making a choice. We're making a choice to continue to, to tax groceries so that we can pay for anti-littering marketing campaigns, essentially. Wow. And I think that's I think that's wrong. Uh, yeah, people are going to litter if they're going if they're going to litter. They want to, no matter what kind of campaign for that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, and maybe at some point in time, thanks for calling, Richard. Really appreciate your call. I think at some point in time, maybe it was necessary. You know, back. 50, 60 years ago, maybe it was worthwhile to raise awareness about litter and try to, you know, promote a clean environment in Arkansas. Certainly, I mean, look, we're the natural state. I'm a huge conservationist. I think it's hugely important. And and I'm not against anti-littering campaigns necessarily. But I don't think, I mean, I don't think we should be taxing groceries at all, period. But I certainly don't think we should be taxing groceries to pay for anti-littering campaigns. I know that's not all they do. I know there's probably some great people that work at some of those agencies. I know some of them. I'm not even necessarily suggesting we abolish those agencies, although they should probably be reduced in size. I think most state agencies should. We've got two to one the number of state employees per capita as our neighbors in Tennessee. Two to one. Two to one the number of state employees per capita. And 
part of that, I mean, a lot of that is driven by this type of stuff. Something that was a good idea maybe 50 years ago. And we've always done it this way, right? Like I wasn't even alive at the time. So as long as I know, as long as I've known or I've been around, we've always had keep Arkansas beautiful. We've always had these big gargantuan departments. Now let me be clear because I'm realizing I think I think the tax that created uh, the, the 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 amendment that created the grocery tax was in like the early '90s. So before I get some angry phone calls or tweets, I was technically alive then. But my point is, there's a lot of examples of this stuff across state government that's just never been challenged. No one has had, you know, we talked with Congressman Westerman in the 7 o'clock hour about some of the work that he did 10 years ago as majority leader in the 2013 legislative session, and they had a one-vote majority. And realistically, I mean, I think they probably knew there was stuff that they were putting forward that even if they could have gotten it to the governor's desk, Governor Beebe sure as heck wasn't going to sign it. But sometimes you need that voice in the wilderness, as I told him, raising awareness about some of this stuff. And it may not change overnight. And you don't have to, you know, you don't have to get mad. You don't have to get bent out of shape about it. You don't have to do a letter writing campaign or, you know, send somebody a nasty tweet or whatever. But I think we can have a conversation. We should have a conversation about do we need to tax groceries at all? And if we're going to tax groceries... Well, let me say it a different way. We don't need to tax groceries. So we need to get rid of that. Period. Full stop. And then the the question becomes, okay, do we need to replace that revenue with something else so that we can continue to have Keep Arkansas Beautiful and all these other things? Maybe we do. But I think it's worth a conversation because I don't think we've ever, I mean, I've been around for a minute, been doing this work for about 10 years. Our organiza- our current organization, my current organization is new, but I've been around dabbling in the state policy landscape for, well, more like 12 years now. And as far as I've been around, as far as I can back, you know, back as I can remember, <clears throat> That wasn't a sentence, but you know what I mean. As far back as I can yonder. I got him on that one. I got a chuckle out of Aaron on that one. Uh, but as far as far back as I can recall, we, we've never really stopped and said, okay, wait, what, why, do we, why are we spending $10 million a year on Keep Arkansas Beautiful? And Oh, and some of that money goes to the Game and Fish as well, I should say. So to Richard's point, look, I love to fish. I've gotten into hunting the last couple years. Uh, I think it's very important. Can't wait till my son's old enough to go. I'm not. I'm not even suggesting that those are bad things or that that we shouldn't have all those things necessarily. 
but I am suggesting we should fund them with something else other than a tax on groceries. And we should also, while we're at it, we should stop and pause and think, okay, do we need all this stuff? Because that's how we've gotten in this mess with this massive, gargantuan state government is because no one's ever stopped and just said, okay, yeah, we could do that. Or, hey, we've been doing this for the last 50 years or 60 years or 100 years, but, like, should we be doing it? Or is there a better way to do it? Or could we outsource it? Or could we roll it into a different department? Or could we do it more cheaply? I mean, just basic level-setting questions that need to be asked across, frankly, all of state government. Because we've just been on autopilot. And even when Republican majority came in, we still had a Democrat governor for a while. And then we went from, like, small Republican majorities to super majorities almost overnight. It felt like overnight. Huge jumps. But, you know, super majorities, trust me, folks, are not the solution to everything. They come with their own challenges. The biggest one, I think, being that people get comfortable. People get comfortable, and it's it's easy. I'm not saying this is the case right now, so don't get me wrong. But it's very easy, it's very tempting to get into the mindset that, well, we're in the supermajority. Like, we got 82 in the House, we got 29 in the Senate. I mean, we pro- most of these folks won't even have opponents next year from the other side. So it's easy to get complacent. It's also easy to think you're invincible. And it doesn't necessarily matter what we do because... We could lose 15 seats, and we're still going to have a pretty strong majority. And so it's just easy to wander. Wander, not wander. Okay, wander with an A. Wander off. So we, we all have a responsibility, I think, and certainly we're trying to do our part at Opportunity Arkansas just to raise these questions. Do we need to have do we need to have 300 okay do we need to have 350 state employees that make more than the governor and the governor makes like $160,000 a year or something like that which is not crazy for a governor but then you look at like okay that's the low that's the low end of this population, this universe we're talking about, you got 350 state employees that make more than that. Some of them make a half a million dollars a year just in salary. And that doesn't include like benefits, pension, paid time off, health insurance. I mean, it's a pretty, pretty good gig. I think Aaron and I might go work for state government. We could do pretty well. But we just need to ask some of these questions because I think we got to change our mindset around some of this stuff. We're back on the Dave Ellswick Show. Nick Horton filling in for Dave Ellswick. Opportunity Arkansas is the name of our organization, opportunityarkansas.org. I would encourage you, if you haven't yet, go follow us on Facebook, Twitter, X, whatever it's called, Insta, Insta Snap, Instagram. I don't know what the kids call it, but I think it's Instagram. It's the one that Facebook owns. 
Uh, but go give us a follow. We're we're putting out a lot of content. And one of the things we're doing, and I want to just really shift gears maybe a little bit abruptly here, but I want to talk about foster care. Because this is something that very few people are talking about. And there's a lot of great nonprofits. The Call, Project Zero. There's some great groups in Arkansas that are doing a lot of work. Restore Hope, Paul Chapman's group. They do fantastic work. But they're all approaching it sort of from the community side and working with, like, working to recruit foster parents and train foster parents and intervene with families that are in crisis to try to prevent their families from getting sucked into the foster care system. Super important work. Very critical. Love what they're doing. But from a policy standpoint, frankly, they're just, that I've seen, there hasn't been a ton of attention given to this, in the legislature at least. Now the governor, Governor Sanders, give her a ton of credit. She created a public-private partnership called Every Child Arkansas. And one of the things that they're doing is bringing people together to have conversations about what are the problems. And honestly, similar to what we were talking about in the last segment, why are we having the same problems in foster care that we've been having for 20 years? What's going on? And how do we fix this? And how do we work with nonprofits and DHS and the private sector and bring everybody together and figure out what the underlying problems are. Cause I know for me, I can think back to at least, at least 10 years ago when I first started hearing about the foster care crisis in Arkansas through our church and community groups around Conway and I mean, I thought I wanted to run through a brick wall, just hair on fire about how, like, how horrible is this that we have so many kids in need and we don't have enough foster families to help take care of them and kids are sleeping in DHS offices because we don't have enough foster homes. But that was 10 years ago. And, like, I know personally a lot of people that have heard that message and heard that call for help and have stood up and raised their hand and said, I'll help. I'll be a foster parent. I'm not going to let the neediest among us fall by the wayside. I'm going to step up. But what happens so many times is they just get completely bogged down in the process and the cobwebs of state government. And look, we're not talking about we're not talking about background checks, we're not talking about home inspect. We're not talking about like the basic essentials of making sure that kids are safe. Nobody wants to change that. Nobody wants to do anything to mess with that. But there are some things that could be addressed, that should be addressed, that are just making it really difficult for good people, many of whom I know personally. I could name dozens of people that I know personally that have stepped up 
either become foster parents or tried to become foster parents. And I have to tell you, a lot of them, I would, I'm guessing, but I would say roughly half of them fizzle out somewhere, somewhere along the way in the certification process because it's too complicated. And it's one of those things where it's just, again, just like we were talking about in the last segment with Keep Arkansas Beautiful and just the, the overall size and scope of state government, we've just been on autopilot. And in my in my recollection, there has not been a ton of attention, public attention brought to this problem. Now there have been there's been a lot of public attention brought to the problem of, you know, recruiting enough foster parents. But why is but but the question of why is it so difficult to do that? And then once you get good foster parents, why is it so difficult to keep them engaged in the system? There's not been nearly enough conversation about that. Nick Horton of Opportunity Arkansas filling in for the great Dave Ellswick. Somebody left there. Oh, wow. I wish I had not looked in that cup. Um, okay. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Woo. Somebody left some old drink in here in this uh, little Yeti cup here, and it is not pretty. So... Uh, I'll leave that to you, Aaron. But we're back on the Dave Ellswick Show. Uh, Nick Horton filling in for Dave. Hey, we're talking about foster care reform. Super important, super serious topic. And I I think just unfortunately it's just not something that has gotten enough attention. You know, and I should say, I think I remember vaguely when Governor Hutchinson came in in 2014, uh, well, I guess beginning of 2015, he did a little bit of work on foster care. And had a foster care summit and I think did a decent job kind of raising some awareness about this. But for for whatever reason, some of these underlying problems that have just been a problem for decades, the best I can tell, didn't get addressed. And I think some of this just speaks to the nature of government. Again, we've been talking about this for most of the show that for whatever reason... You know, and again, some of it just the nature of the beast. These programs, these these agencies get created and they come about and they just kind of go on autopilot. And they just become sort of self-sustaining and self-protective. Um, but, you know, a lot of times, I mean, state government is so big. Right. I mean, we have 70 8,000 state employees. 78,000, including higher ed. And so it can be tough to get your head and your hands around the problems that are so widespread. But this is one, like, and I don't think I have to convince this audience, this is one we have to get right. And we have to get it right soon. Because we're sending kids into foster care. Some of which, frankly, don't need to be there. 
they need to be with their families or with close family or with church family or someone else close by that's trustworthy. But like just to give you a sense of this problem, I mean, the average number of placements for a foster kid, like once you go into the foster system, on average, this is an average, which means there's some kids that experience more than this. But on average, you're going to go into four different foster homes. Four. On average. Think about that. Like, I mean, I was, I remember as a kid, I mean, I was fragile as a kid. Not going to lie. My parents would agree. I, I cannot imagine when I was seven, eight, nine years old being tossed around from house to house to house. I mean, I had a hard enough time just going to camp summer camp and being gone for a week. That's just how I was. I was a homebody and I wanted to be with my family. I cannot imagine being a kid and being ripped away from my family and tossed around and around and around. And by the way, the reunification rate, like the the chance that you're ever going to get back with your Biological family is 40%. 40%. So just statistically speaking, if you end up in the foster system in Arkansas, like there's a pretty good chance the odds are you're not going to ever be permanently reunited with your family. And this doesn't even account for, like, the bad outcomes on the back end of foster care. That you're significantly more likely to end up in long-term poverty, in dependency, in crime. I mean, I've heard stories even recently of folks that work in prison ministries going and speaking to groups of prisoners and asking folks, hey, if you were ever in the foster system, raise your hand. And the hands just go up everywhere. So we got to be dang sure. We better be dang sure before we send a kid into foster care that that is absolutely necessary. And that it's absolutely the best decision for them. And I think of this a lot like I think of the welfare system. I mean, we have a welfare system. It should be there. It should be strong for people that truly need it. But we can't just assume. Like, it would be silly to assume or to suggest that welfare long-term is good for people. There's no evidence of that, and there's a lot of evidence to the contrary particularly if you're a you know, working age, able-bodied person. Foster care is similar. It's a similar construct in my mind. It should be there. It should be strong for kids that truly need it, that are truly in danger, that truly have nowhere else to go. 
and it should work really, really well for those kids. And the goal should be reunification as much as possible, keeping families together as much as possible, and protecting kids as much as possible. And part of protecting kids that I think gets lost in this debate is working as much as possible to get them reunited with their families. Because if you're a believer, which I am and I know many of you are, I mean, I think we have to recognize and accept that like these kids were placed in these families sovereignly, like divinely. And does that mean that, like, if someone is being abused or if there's some horrible, dangerous situation that they shouldn't be removed? Of course not. But should our default be that we work towards reunification? I think so. I don't think government or any of us should be stepping in and trying to play God, quite literally, and trying to piece families together arbitrarily. Again, there are a ton of cases and exceptions to this and and times where foster care is absolutely necessary and reunification is not best. But that should be the goal. Just like with welfare, the goal should be to get people out and back into the workforce as quickly as possible if you're able-bodied. That should be the same goal with foster care. If kids are in danger or families are in crisis and they need some temporary help, let's get their kids in a safe home and give them a safe place to sleep at night. And then let's do everything we can to keep that family together. Because those kids are going to be better off. Their families are going to be better off. I mean, imagine if like, imagine if you're a mom in crisis and you lose your kids. And I know, I know I can hear you all. Like, some of you that have worked in this space, well, Nick, you don't understand. Like, a bunch of these people are potheads. Or a bunch of these people are this. Or a bunch of these people are this. I get it. Like, again, I'm not saying there aren't circumstances where kids should be removed. Certainly that's the case. But I think, again, putting just putting things out in front and challenging and just forcing ourselves to ask some questions about the way this is working. Like we need to stop and take stock of the way this is working or not working. Just because a mom is in a moment of crisis or a family is in crisis and maybe they do legitimately need help and they legitimately need their kids to go into foster care. What right do any of us have to assume or to say that they should have to like jump through all of these massive hoops to get their own kids back. Yes, there should be hoops. There should be a process. No one is suggesting we shouldn't get rid of that. We should get rid of that process. But are the hoops too high? Are the hurdles too high? Is there an assumption that when a kid goes into foster care, that their parents have just done something? unforgivably wrong 
and that they should have to work really, really hard to get their kids back. And imagine if you're a mom or a dad or a family in distress. We talked about this from the kids' perspective of being tossed around, being ripped away from your family, and then being tossed on average into four different houses in the Arkansas foster system. Imagine if you're a mom. Like, imagine if you're a single mom struggling to pay your bills and you lose your job or you have an unexpected illness and all of a sudden you lose your kids? Like, how horrible is that? I mean, I I think we just need to acknowledge, like, this is really hard on kids and families is it necessary sometimes? Absolutely. But even when it's necessary, that doesn't necessarily make it easy. Right? Like my friend Andrew Brown from the Texas Public Policy Foundation, he's been on the show with me before. And one of the things he said that I have never forgotten and probably n- never will forget is that the decision to put some, a, a child in foster care is traumatic in and of itself. And so the question, like the decision that's being made when a kid is put into foster care should be what causes the least amount of trauma? Because you know, and we've got a story we'll share here after the break about this from an Arkansas family that we talked to. But by taking a kid away from their family and putting them into foster care, you have automatically introduced trauma. So then the decision should be which pathway causes the least amount of trauma, leaving them with their family or taking them from their family. And a lot of times, I mean, I have studied this issue a lot now, and I've talked to a lot of folks in and out of the system. And a lot of times the assumption is putting them into foster care is always the best answer and we got to protect them and we got to intervene and we got to do something and we got to help. And there's not this recognition or this acknowledgement that by doing that in and of itself, you're creating a moment in that child's life that they will never forget the moment that someone showed up and took them away from their family. And that's a sad reality of this that we've got to talk about. Oh, Nick Horton of Opportunity Arkansas filling in for the great Dave Ellswick. Um, I've been kind of leading up to this, building this up for the last few segments. So I want to be sure we get to this. Um, if you want to read along or read this story, I would encourage you to go to opportunityarkansas.org. You can click on your story at the top in the very top menu. And this will be the very first story that pops up. But this is um, this is one of many stories about families that have dealt with the foster care system in Arkansas that we're going to be telling over the next several years, if not longer, at Opportunity Arkansas. And so I want to read this to you because it really, in an in a incredibly profound way, but in a, in a way that you know brings to life everything that we've been talking about, this is it. This is, the, this is a story of a real Arkansas family that's going to tell you their experience with the foster care system and 
hopefully is going to demonstrate to you that I'm not crazy and I'm not just making all this stuff up because this is this is real life. This is stuff that is that is really happening. So this story is uh, from the Spear family from Conway. And we sat down with the mom of the family, Maria Spear. And I'm just going to read this. It's, you know, a page. And this is all in her words. This is just straight verbatim what she shared with us. And so here we go from Maria Spear. Quote, when I was very young, adoption was planted deep in my heart. And my husband and I always talked about building a family through adoption. Little did we know that was God's plan for how we built our family. We received training from the call and adopted siblings in March of 2020. The approval time for us was six to nine months. It was a very long process from the admissions papers and training to waiting on our home study. You feel like you're always waiting on someone. For us, one of the biggest challenges was being handed children and knowing nothing about them. Even if the state knows things about the children, they don't disclose it to you. I think it would be helpful for the children themselves if foster parents were allowed more access to information about their history and the challenges they're facing. And here's where, here's where it gets real. Continuing here in Maria's own words, she says, I've also seen the severe effects of displacement on these kids. Our oldest child says the most tragic day of her life isn't what happened to her before foster care. It was the day she was taken into foster care. And I'm just going to read that again from Maria Spear. Our oldest adopted child says the most tragic day of her life is not what happened to her before foster care. It was the day she was taken into foster care. My daughter was eight years old when a strange man placed her into a car with her sister. The man was a Department of Human Services worker, but she didn't know that. She remembers beating, screaming, and crying in the backseat of the car for someone to help her. She thought she was being abducted. We have to do better than that. Someone needs to do better for these children than for them to think they're being abducted from school by a man they don't know. We're reading here from Maria Spear, OpportunityArkansas.org. She continues, she says, that's why we should look at places where they're eliminating the need for foster care. There's pockets in the country where this has happened, where the church has stepped in. The care for the widow and the orphan is a command from Scripture that the church needs to fill. And when the church steps away from their role, chaos ensues. That's what happened in our foster care system. We need to privatize it more and allow religious organizations to step in. We need to add backup and support services to struggling families before we take their children away. If we support them earlier, we'll have less children in need of foster care. And in situations where something needs to happen, we should allow the church to play a bigger part. Our first instinct should not be to remove children from their homes. The longer children are in foster care, the more harm it does to them. 
And then the last piece here from Maria Spear, we're reading this from OpportunityArkansas.org. She says, I really believe this is a calling. It's not something you step into lightly. You're dealing with hard situations with very little information and sometimes very little support. And then she quotes her daughter and she says, my daughter said it best. We need to make sure the people that actually care are the ones doing the job. And that's from Maria Spear. You can read that yourself at opportunityarkansas.org under the Your Story section. This is our first foster care story of many that we're going to be telling. And that quote, the most tragic day of her life, isn't what happened before foster care. It was the day she was taken into foster care. And and this is one story. So don't don't hear me wrong on this. I don't think this is every case. But it is a case. It is a real story of something that happened. And it confirms, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about and what foster care experts have been talking about for a while. That the, the act of putting a kid into the foster care system in and of itself creates trauma. And in this case, clearly it was handled poorly. I don't think that's always the case. I know people at DHS, some really good people over there. And a lot of them are there because they really genuinely care about kids and they care about this issue. But even if it's handled perfectly... At the end of the day, you are taking a child away from their family. On today's show, Nick Horton filling in for Dave Ellswick. We've been talking about all sorts of stuff today. We talked with Representative French Hill and Representative Bruce Westerman in the first hour about what's going on on the Hill, potential budget showdown, potential government shutdown. And then we've been talking a lot about income tax reform and foster care reform. Particularly in the last hour, we shared a story of an Arkansas family out of Conway and their, frankly, horrifying experience with the foster care system here in Arkansas. And I can only assume he just got tired of hearing my voice, so he decided to call in. Uh, But now we have on the line a very special guest, Representative Britt McKenzie. Thanks for joining Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. Um, no, I was just trying to give the listeners of today's Ellsworth show a reprieve from your voice. Hey, that's what I. That's what I figured. That's what I figured. Now, remind us. I know your district's up there somewhere. It's a long way from Little Rock, but remind us where your district is. Yeah, I represent the seventh district, which is the eastern part of Benton County: Rogers, Avoca, Gateway, and Garfield. Okay, and I know we had you on the show. Gosh, it was probably almost a year ago. It was last fall. I think it was pre-election even, so you hadn't officially... We knew you were going to win, or at least we thought you would probably win against your, you know, no opponent that you had. Um, but a lot's changed since then in the world and in Arkansas. Tell us a little bit about your experience coming in as a freshman legislator. Obviously a pretty exciting time with a new conservative governor, super majorities in the House, but I imagine a little bit like drinking out of a fire hydrant have you found the bathrooms yet? Tell us that, and then tell us more about your experience in your first legislative session. Yeah, the most exciting part about um, being on the tail end of, of being a freshman legislator is uh, you won't have to hear the 
bathrooms cliche much longer, but um, it's it's. No, you get to start using it on other people next year. So. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's the, that's the fun part. Um, now, the, the best way to describe it is like trying to fit ten pounds of chicken in a five pound bag. I mean, coming into it, I, my eyes were open to the fact that um, coming into the general assembly, um, it's a limited amount of time, it's a limited, limited amount of opportunity and capacity to get work done. But um, as as written in the constitution, I think it's important for us to come in, do our business, and leave. But as a result of that, we you know we try to get by we, I mean, most of my colleagues try to get a lot of legislation passed. And, you know, at the end of this last session, we <clears throat> suspended the rules and had to move consideration timelines on, on bills pretty quickly. But, you know, the biggest learning for me was that, um, albeit we have amazing staff and there's, there's great uh, colleagues and peers that you can lean on for support, guidance, and wisdom, um, you know, you're kind, of, you're kind of flying solo and you have to figure out um, specific what you want to to spend your time doing, and um, from my perspective, at least, you can spend that time being a specialist, you know, focusing on um, select issues, um, policy initiatives that are going to help, you know, get our kingdoms back to work, get the wheels of our economy moving, um, get government out of the way of job creators uh, in the private sector, or you can be a generalist and you try to have a you know finger in every pie. And uh, you, I think for most freshmen, it's good to, to do that for a little bit and then realize and hone in on uh, what you want to spend your time doing and the policies you hope to advocate for and ultimately what benefits your constituents the most, the work that you need to do, um, the little time that we need to be in Little Rock, the, what you have to do to benefit your constituents back home. So there's been a lot of talk. Obviously, the LEARNS Act was something hugely significant that came out of the regular session. And of course, the left is going berserk and you know, telling everyone about how the sky is falling and dogs and cats are sleeping together and all the schools are going to shut down and all these horrible things. And specifically in regard to the Learns Act, what's the feedback been as you've gone home and you've heard from voters and people on the ground? What what kind of response are you getting? Um, it's, been, it's been great, actually. Um, I represent what's considered a, a rural part of Benton County. I know everyone thinks that Northwest Arkansas is the land of milk and honey and there's, you know, bike paths everywhere, but I do represent a, a rural portion of Benton County, and um, I only represent one high school and a, and a small gathering of um, private and public elementary, middle, and upper schools, so um, it's been good. I mean, I, I don't, you don't have to look hard or find testimonial about, um, I was reading the Arkansas Catholic this last week, that all 26 schools, Catholic schools in the state of Arkansas, have onboarded to, to the EFA program. Um, over a 1,000 students are currently um, utilizing an EFA in some form or fashion, either from previous succeed uh, prerequisites or um, new qualifications. And uh, as everyone should know, the, the qualifications are pretty narrow. You know, a five-year-old entering kindergarten or some or individual students from these unique classes that need help um, from, you know, being in a failing school, F-rated school, or um, several different qualifications, homeless, foster care, things like that. So I've heard great things. You know, there's a, uh, I've been my my district specifically, there's work on uh, changing a current uh, school in Garfield into an open enrollment charter school um, because of some of the moving parts and pieces with um, the Rogers public school system and you know, the need for busing and being 20 to 30 to sometimes an hour away from um, the school you've been assigned to. So school choice isn't a fad. I've said that. I think I may even said this that on this program several times. It's, it's not a fad. It's here to stay. 
um, empowering parents to make decisions that's best for their students is not something that's just going to be in vogue. Hopefully it's a systemic change in the way we think about educating and preparing our students to thrive in you know, the workforce or in the world that they create for them. So uh, it's, been, it's been good. Obviously, you're right. The left has been banging a drum about this is going to end the public school system as we know it, but just you know, similar to how uh, debates about uh, private option came about, you know, if you like your doctor, you get to keep it. If you like your school, you like your teacher, um, you get to keep it. If you're a good teacher, you're going to keep your job. Um, <laughs> Except so, we mean it in this case. Yeah. Exactly. Um, exactly. So, well, you said, uh, Re- Representative, you said two things. I just want to clarify and make sure they're true because I'm having a hard time believing based on everything I've heard. You said, you know, one, you said you're from a rural district and the feedback on learns has been good. And then you also said, if I understood correctly, that even within the public school system in your neck of the woods, there are kids that have to be bused 20, 30 minutes up to an hour away. And I mean, I've been told that doesn't happen and that there aren't private schools within reach of enough Arkansas kids. And so therefore learns doesn't matter. So, I mean, can you just, are you, are you from a rural district and people are not like protesting outside your house? Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, no, that's not the case. And, you know, it's unique because the argument is, is we always try to put things into two buckets on a spectrum, left or versus right. But at the end of the day, um, the status quo is not working. And I think people's eyes are opening to that fact. And education as we know it is not just, you know, funding a system blindly and, um, you know, trying to put more inputs into something and hope for better outputs. Um, It is, we are coming to see with everything that's happened in, you know, adjoining states, comparable states, where parents are saying, I'm not getting the results, albeit I'm paying for it with my tax dollars. So what can I do to, to, to better prepare my children for the world that they're going to be entering? So this monolith argument that, that individuals use is, is falling flat. And I made comments throughout, you know, sitting on the education committee as we were considering learns, as we were working to tweak it between moving the House and Senate, um, working close with bill sponsors, uh, Senator Brian Davis and Keith Brooks, um, a lot of the arguments made against learns are boogeyman arguments. They are meant to fearmonger. They're meant to scare. Um, at the end of the day, what we need to be most concerned about, not, you know, is the school going to get enough money for um, a, a new track or to get the superintendent a Tahoe? It really should be about are we giving the resources that are necessary to our students um, so that they can thrive, so that they can learn in their own way. And I, I just – I haven't seen any of those uh, chicken little um, platitudes come to life yet. And I know it's still early days and the, the attrition of the, on the plan is going to take time. And, you know, year three will really be uh, the proving ground for it, but um, all systems are go. And, and even anecdotally, I know anecdote is not the plural of data, but, you know, I've worked with several individuals in my community that have, you know, the learning curve on learns was, was short and, Oh, I didn't realize this was an opportunity for us. So, um, trying to help them, working with individuals from the Arkansas Department of Education, the EFA program, the administrators there, and onboarding them onto it has been a seamless process. You know, working with schools that um, that opted in to accept EFA um, uh, programs and dollars has been a, has been a seamless process. Albeit, we're also still trying to figure out the world around us. It's you know, it, there's no calamity. Nothing that I have been bore witness to has been. Hmm. A negative output. Well, keep us posted on that because I've been assured by many, many sources that uh, things are burning down out there. So I want to I want to be kept in the loop if that starts to change. Um, we got about four minutes left. I want to just get your thoughts briefly 
obviously, you know, we've talked, we've been talking about the regular session, but there was also a special session that happened last week. And the governor called you folks back into town, considered a handful of things, some of which, you know, were maybe better than others. But what are your thoughts on the special session? What should folks know that that happened that's significant last week? Well, the headline, and uh, if if you you know flip the pages of the Democrat Gazette or any other periodical independent blog or corporate media output is, you know, bad. It's all been, you know, this is not a, a good use of taxpayer funds. I want to remind everybody that we cut two, $210 million um, from the state budget. Your taxes are lower now. Um, moving that effective rate down is, you know, more significant work by, by sure volume and not to discount the work we did in our actual session from January to April. But we cut more taxes and four days than we did in 90 days previous. So um, the, the I, as I like to say, and I've advocated for not only on the campaign trail, but as I talk to constituents, um, it is hopefully the responsibility of your supermajority Republicans in um, the House and Senate to give you a, a roadmap, a pathway to zero percent state income tax. Um, I think we're well on our way. We are cutting responsibly. We're being prudent with uh, public dollars. It's something that I'm, I'm proud of in just nine, ten short months of being in the legislature. I've been able to be a part of cutting uh, the individual uh, rate by, um, by, by half a percent, by 0.5 percent. That's, that's amazing. Other states would be green with envy um, for that much progress in that short amount of time while still being responsible, while still funding all the programs. You know, no program as a result of this had to take a, a cut. Nothing's been underfunded. We didn't have to malappropriate money in order to do this. This was, you know, based on growth numbers as well as the fact that we're entering our third year of a projected billion-dollar surplus. So um, that's the headline. Obviously, um, the fodder, the cannon fodder of uh, the reform work that was proposed by uh, on, on the Freedom of Information Act is going to steal headlines, and I, I don't think we're out of the news cycle on that. I, I was initially a co-sponsor of the first uh, the first iteration of that bill because I think that at, at the end of the day, there are necessary reforms. Am I leading the work on that in the legislature? No. And I commend um, David Ray, Representative David Ray, and Senator um, uh, 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 Bart Hester on the work. And I know that there will be there has been made promises about the FOIA task force and the Attorney General's FOIA, uh, FOIA working group to continue continue to look at and see what needed reforms there are. But um, FOIA is a part of. Uh, the ethos of our Arkansas government and, you know, the regent populace, the, the fact that the people rule in the state of Arkansas. But we also, as fiscal and um, small government-minded conservatives, we need to understand that we are um, supporting and enabling for inefficiency at times in our government, as well as competitive disadvantage. So um, I, I'm happy with the bill that we passed. I was, you know, part of some conversations when it came down to how we whittled it to, just to the security portions for the governor's um, family and ASP security detail. But, you know, do I think this debate is over? No, I think we still need to consider and look at um, uh, what elements of reform we can take up and through concerted stakeholder input uh, make in the near future. But, you know, we have agencies and, and administrators and different parts of our government that, you know, as a legislator, I, I we write bills to help to ask for them to go execute, that they are spending more time, you know, beating back and working on disclosing uh, significant information um, about the rules promulgation and guidelines process than they are actually doing the work. And I don't think that's efficient, efficient work, especially when, you know, we have, uh, you've spent most of your, your show today talking about DHS, 
um, and education to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Um, when we, when, when individuals in those agencies whose job it is to, you know, promote, uh, you know, getting kids placed in forever homes and getting kids educated in, ed- in the education department, when they're spending more of their resources on lawyers responding to FOIA requests, I think that that's a misappropriation of the, the you know, the efforts and money that we give to them to go execute our laws. So there's still needed reform. Um, I, I, I'm thankful that we got the work done that we did, but yeah, um, it, it was definitely a eye-opener week for a freshman legislator. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.